It's January 21st, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lam. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then we'll hear how video games might not only be art, but a way to perpetuate indigenous culture and spreading the story that way. Amy Frieden of the Cook Tinglet Tribal Council in Alaska will be calling in to tell us about an upcoming event at Kaka'ako Agora. And finally, we've got a rundown from Robbie Melton from HTDC and Representative Angus McKelvey on the tech policy bills being introduced in the 2015 legislative session. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet us on Twitter. But first, the headlines. A new planetary system 150 light years away has been discovered with one of three Earth-sized planets orbiting at the edge of the habitable zone where liquid water could be found at the surface. Several researchers at the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy were part of the discovery team. The three-planet system was spotted using the Kepler uh, Space Telescope and the Keck Observatory on the Big Island was among the ground-based facilities that confirmed its, its existence. The discovery was announced on Friday. At this early stage, the compositions of the newly discovered planets is unknown, but they are 1.5 to 2 times the size of Earth, and, our, and the outermost planet has garnered the most attention due to an orbit that could support an environment comparable to Earth's. Eric Pettigura, a visiting graduate student from the University of California at Berkeley, said in a statement, There is a very real possibility that the outer planet is rocky like Earth. If so, this planet could have the right temperature to support liquid water oceans. The next stage of observations uh, will focus on the atmospheres around these planets. The team plans to use the Hubble Space Telescope to detect which elements are present. A mix of nitrogen and oxygen would support life as we know it, but a more common um, hydrogen composition would not. The discovery using the Kepler telescope is especially remarkable because it was believed to be crippled by hardware failure last year. But while it can now only see a small fraction of the planetary systems in its gaze, it was enough to find these three new planets. And, of course, I, I, you know, I'm wearing my uh, Institute for Astronomy shirt today. Yes, you because, are. You this know, is Exoplanet Palooza, the radio show. And, uh, you know, we've uh, announced, uh, you know, the exoplanet discoveries. And I think for the most part, a lot of them have been large sort of Jupiter-sized planets. Right. Uh, there was one, I think, uh, the last year that was more of an Earth-sized, but still the, it was large, kind of large Earth size, like two or three times the size of Earth. And the, uh, the, the one of the things that they were really focusing on in this discovery and the announcement was that the Kepler, the space telescope, did have a hardware failure. It could, not, it could no longer be stabilized to fix its gaze on a single point in the sky. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it could have been essentially rendered useless, but they were able to change the rotation so that it is in a geosynchronous orbit and it is along the plane of Earth's orbit. So it is at least very stable in that one you know, dimension. And because of that, we can see other planets if they're also along that same plane, along that same horizontal plane. So what I found interesting and what they said is because we can see them in this limited view, what if they could see, look back at us and see mm-hmm. us in the same way because of that alignment? So I thought that was also well, interesting. Well, I, I thought the, you know, the engineering feat for them to figure out that they could use the Earth's sort of orbit and, and gravitational uh, influence on, you know, on the uh, Kepler was able to kind of stabilize it because it wasn't able to look at the you know the the uh, the angle that it right, was normally right. looking at, but they used the Earth's gravity to kind of stabilize it. Yeah, so even with these, uh, the, it pointed in a direction and catching things essentially by chance, they can get good data. So, mm-hmm. great work. 
Volcanic eruptions are typically hard to predict, but Old Faithful at Yellowstone National Park is one of the most predictable geographical features on the planet. It erupts almost every 91 minutes. Perhaps that's why a research team out of the University of Hawaii at Manoa focused on the geyser and its new mobile app. The NPS Geysers app, available for both iOS and Android devices, was spearheaded by Brett Oppegard, an assistant professor in the School of Communications within the College of Social Sciences at UH. It was part of ongoing research in to ubiquitous computing. The team started with the idea that time in Yellowstone National Park was not governed by standard measures of time, but instead predicted on when Old Faithful erupted. The mobile app tells users when the next eruptions will happen at Old Faithful and other geysers in the park. Uh, Opigard said in a statement that shifting of a community to Old Faithful time is fascinating and represents uh, in many analog uh, forms at the park, such as on whiteboards and on uh, hand-spun clocks, we wanted to start building our research project on the idea that Old Faithful Time reflects a new way of looking at the world. And because the app features a live webcam pointed at the park's geysers, people around the world can become aligned with Old Faithful Time, getting a notification of a pending eruption and tuning in to watch the eruption along with the people in the park. The app is, in fact, the first official and sanctioned National Park Service app available for Yellowstone and includes the park's social media feeds from Twitter, Flickr, and YouTube. It provides easy access to up-to-date park news and media, including photos and videos. And of course, uh, there's also a webcam access on the uh, on the app, so that's pretty cool. And, you know, if anybody, of course, I think a lot of people that uh, listen to the show probably have gone to Yellowstone. And, you know, when you are able to actually watch Old Faithful and, and sort of Set your schedule based on its eruption. You understand what Old Faithful time is all about. Right. And, you know, we set our time because of the sun, the heliocentric schedule. Mm -hmm. But uh, certainly many ancient cultures worked on the tides, the movement of the moon. That's how they divided their day. So why not in a park where basically the big attraction is when the geyser blows? That's what really people are paying attention to. And those are sort of the mileposts throughout a day that you pay attention to. I can totally imagine that even if you've worked in the park, you probably start to measure your your day at the park, like, okay, that's about four geyser eruptions, it's time to go home. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the only thing is, you know, the uh, the regularity of Old Faithful and its uh, eruptions are is shifting because of some of the you know earthquakes that have happened uh, there, so it's not as regular as it was before. Right, right, but still an interesting idea, and uh, I, I'm, I'm racking my brains thinking of what you might be able to do, perhaps, say, for a uh, Hawaii community and something that it might mark its days by, but very cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and on the uh, tech calendar on the Big Island uh, on Monday, January 26th, uh, Kalo uh, Konawaina High School in Kealakekua is hosting 22 undergraduate students from MIT who are researching VOG or volcanic smog. The students, all from MIT's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, are visiting Hawaii Island as part of an annual winter term class called Traveling Research Environmental Experiences, or TREKS. The uh, Reef Talk event will cover the impact of VOG on air quality and ecosystem health. For more information, you can check out the UH Sea Grant program on Facebook at facebook.com slash UHC grant. And we should also mention there's an event tomorrow. It's the HVCA uh, luncheon, and it's specifically going to talk about what we're going to talk about, perhaps as a preview here on the show mm-hmm. after the break, which is essentially the tech policy agenda for the upcoming year. That's right. We're uh, going to spend probably a good amount of time uh, talking about that during the show, as well as uh, 
an upcoming event uh, with uh, put on by HVCA, Hawaii Venture Capital Association, on Thursday. So if you're in downtown Honolulu and you want to check that out, that's going to happen over at the uh, Pioneer Plaza. And I don't want to toot your horn, but you are also going to be part of that program tomorrow? Wow, you're so observant. <laughs> How did you know about that? Anyway, so yeah, I'll be, uh, there'll be a pretty uh, good panel, and I think uh, we'll have a lot of questions for them, but we'll have a, uh, a separate section where we actually engage the audience and have them give us some feedback on what they think about the uh, uh, possible tech uh, uh, major issues and policy that they might want to suggest. Well, for more information on that, you can visit the HVCA on the web at hvca.org. And now joining us by phone from Alaska is Amy Friedin. She's a CFO at the Cook Tinglet uh, Tribal Council, to tell us about a game based on traditional culture. I want to welcome you to the show, uh, Amy. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, um, I guess it's probably pretty cold where you're at right now. How many <laughs> inches of snow is on the ground? You know, it's been an odd year. I would say right now we have less than two inches, but right now we have this beautiful landscape because our trees are literally wrapped in the frost that the fog left this morning. Wow. But it's only about 13 degrees out right now, so it's significantly colder here. Yeah, but uh, two inches, that's not a lot. I mean, I remember the last time I went to Anchorage, I mean, it was kind of in the dead of winter, and there was maybe about a, a, a 36 inches of snow, so it was quite a bit yeah. of snow. We've so had a so, lot of snow and melting this year. So right. I want you to tell us a little bit about what is this uh, Never Alone game that the uh, folks uh, sort of uh, partnered up and helped develop? It, you, it's very exciting for me to have been able to work on this game. So and a little bit about me is I'm a Nupiak, and um, this game is based on traditional Nupiak stories. And mm. so um, what's amazing about this game, it is, it is an entertainment game. It is out there to let people have fun, but it's also an invitation to find out more about the Alaska Native people. And so really what inspired us to do this work through the game was we were looking at ways to connect to our youth population. You know, we have a lot of harsh statistics facing our youth out there. Less than half of our kids are graduating from high school. They're three times as likely to commit suicide, and we wanted to give them a positive image and something powerful for them to connect to in a medium they're already interacting with others with. And so we were kicking it around the table at lunch one day, and literally my boss, Gloria O'Neill, who's our CEO, said, why not video games? And from there, we really set out to find a partner who had shared vision and aligned values, and we were able to find um, that partner in Eline Media, and it has been an amazing project, and it's an amazing game. Well, I do definitely want to talk a little bit more about the game, and uh, your boss, uh, the CEO, uh, Gloria O'Neill, will be in Honolulu next week to to uh, talk more about it, but uh, I was really intrigued by this idea because, you know, certainly people in Hawaii know that we have uh, an indigenous Hawaiian population, uh, similar challenges, I think, in terms of the youth and the future, and uh, organizations that also are nonprofits and are trying to find ways to perpetuate the culture and such. Uh, You said that it was an idea that kind of came together at a a meeting, but just how far outside of the box was it? I mean, what would be the normal ways that the cooked uh, tinglet... uh, Tribal Council would normally invest its funds to, 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 to achieve its mission. So, you know, we are what people traditionally think of as a social service nonprofit. So we serve about 12,000 individuals every year. They come through our doors seeking opportunities in education, employment and training, 
um, recovery services and child and family services. But we've also had a large investment in social enterprise. So we have social enterprises that are kind of the first foot into the workspace for many of our people in the community of Anchorage, Alaska. Um, but what we were really seeking was a way to sustain our mission financially, but do it in a way that really had aligned values. And one of the most important things about the Alaska Native cultures, I'm sure with other indigenous cultures like the Native Hawaiians, is that storytelling has always been a way for us to pass wisdom from one generation to the next. Yeah. And so we thought that video games could be that medium, that new way to tell our stories and a new way to share them. Can you uh, give us a, a sense of maybe what the primary story would uh, jump out at you if you were to play the game? Oh, it's a really fun game. So it is a side-scrolling platformer game. And so if any of you grew up playing Mario or, you know, some of the other traditional platformer games, it's really a game where you play, you can either play one player or two player, and there's two characters. And the girl character's name, she's the main character, is Nuna, which means land in Anupiak. But the whole idea behind the game is really that the girl goes on this adventure trying to figure out why her village is facing this endless blizzard. And so she has this fox companion that helps her along the way. And just like in traditional, you know, Arctic Alaska, you have to work together to survive and to win. And so really in the game, if you're playing one player, you have to switch between the two players. But it's amazing. You get to see the beautiful landscape of Arctic Alaska. You get to see different versions and different you know, themes woven into the game. The story itself is based on a traditional story called Konoksayoka, and it is essentially the same storyline. A young man goes out to find the source of this endless blizzard, and this game is really about the adventure the main character goes on to find that. And so it is great. We were able to work with um, Minnie Gray, who's the daughter of Robert Nazrak Cleveland, who is the storyteller known for Konoksayoka, and she's in her late 80s. She's probably never played mm. a video game before. And when we went and talked to her, she gave us permission and said, well, of course you should be telling this story in video games. This is what my grandkids and my great-grandkids are doing. And what was even more amazing is she really helped us modify the game uh, the story to make great gameplay. And so when we would talk to her, you know, about our nervousness about changing this really important story for our people and modifying it for a video game, she said, you know what, each storyteller tells the story different. They mm -hmm. use, you know, a different cadence. They emphasize different parts and um, they bring a different meaning to the story with the way they tell it. And so she was really authorizing us by saying that is to tell it in your way, in a way that's going to connect not only to our youth, but to people around the world. Because one of the things we knew is we weren't going to make the impact we wanted unless this was something the whole world would be interested in. Right. And, you know, Amy, I'm not a game player, but I did, uh, but I know many, and uh, the game is already out there on uh, uh, Xbox, I believe, and Steam on the PC. And I know people who've played and have asked them about it. And, you know, I'm not sure earned or not, but a lot of people talk about the edutainment area and they say, oh, this is a video game, but it's really educational. And for some gamers, that immediately sounds like you're just wrapping broccoli in bacon. <laughs> and it's actually not, you know, we can tell that we're being taught something, so it's not as fun. But that doesn't seem to be the way that this game has been received at all. Have, have you received feedback like that? 
You know, what we've heard is that the way we have woven in the culture, because we've done it in so many different ways, has made great gameplay. So the story itself makes great gameplay. The way we have incorporated in our traditional value of interdependence made great gameplay. And we also really honored that the players would want to be able to play through the game and maybe sometimes opt to stop and watch what we're calling cultural insights in the game or save them up to later. So there are like 23 mini documentaries kind of embedded in the game that you unlock. And the player has the opportunity to say, hey, I just saw this you know, indicator flash up that I have unlocked something. I want to go see what it's about. Or they could wait. And so it's really up to the player. And it they can do it at their own pace to find out more. And what's beautiful about these cultural insights is we have been working with over three dozen community members to gather video footage and listen to our elders talk and listen to our young community members talk about what it means to be a Nupiak, you know, what it means, you know, to um, go on a hunt or whether what the significance of the polar bear is to the people or the mm -hmm. fox. And so you're hearing it from the voices of the community, and you can hear it at your own pace, and you can explore more if you want. Well, Amy, that's great that uh, you know elders have have uh, really supported the the use of new technology. Oftentimes, you know, tradition wants to stay traditional, and and when they embrace the new technology, that's kind of a a great sign of kind of uh, you know moving on and and allowing sort of new forms of the story to be told. Now, so uh, Amy, you're um, I know Gloria is coming over to uh, uh, Honolulu, and she's going to be doing a I guess a presentation over at one of our. Uh, kind of novel co-working uh, spaces called uh, Agora in Kaka'ako, and that's happening on uh, Monday, January 26th uh, at 6 p.m. But can you give us a sense of what, what Gloria's uh, sort of mission is when she heads over to, Ho to Hawaii? You know, the one thing, you know, that I haven't mentioned about our goal for this game is that we really do hope that this sparks and inspires a whole movement around games that can share the stories of people around the world, whether it's indigenous cultures or other cultures. We want to see what we're calling world games as a new genre. And maybe it's going to be CITC working in partnership with other people, or maybe it's gamers who see this and say, I want to do something meaningful like that in games. But the whole idea is that as you bring these stories to the world through video games, that you're not leaving the people behind who have carried the story and honored the story for eons, is that you're working in partnership with them. So I really think that what's happening is we are getting requests say, what about my culture? What about mm -hmm. my stories? And what we're hoping is that we can connect to people who've been partners with us for a long time to say, you could do this as well, and you could share your stories, and you can inspire your youth, even your elders, through video games. That's terrific. So uh, it's going to be coming up this uh, coming Monday on the 26th. That's going to happen over at uh, Kaka'ako Agora. So if you want to check that out, of course, you can go to, I guess, uh, interislandterminal.org and find out uh, when all the uh, details are happening. Anyway, we want to thank you, Amy, for joining us. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you very much. Amy is CFO of the Cook Tinglet Tribal Council. If you want to find out more about the video game, you can go to neveralonegame.com. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Robbie Milton and Representative Angus McKelvey and talk about tech policy and the 2015 legislative session. What are some of the key issues facing the tech industry, key proposals that we're going to see in the legislature? And of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio, and we're monitoring Twitter. You can reach us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. There's a new kind of smuggler out there. They make money by abandoning people at sea. This is a travel agency, the most ruthless travel agency on the planet. There's a huge profit involved. I'm Kai Rizdal. Ghost ships of the Mediterranean next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. The 2015 legislative session opens for business this week. Next on Town Square, our annual look at the issues that Neil Milner, Colin Moore, and I will be watching. So, what's on your list? Let's talk Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozao. And joining us today is Robbie Milton and Representative Angus McKelvey. Robbie is the Executive Director over at the High Tech Development Corporation. Angus, meanwhile, is the Chairperson for the House Committee on Consumer Protection and Commerce. And what are the leading issues facing the tech community? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Robbie and Angus, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, yeah. uh, well, I want to get both of your impressions of today's uh, opening uh, session. And Robbie, so maybe you can tell me, you, you know, you spent some time down there uh, and, of course, I would think you're going to be probably spending a lot of time over the next five months <laughs> at the Capitol. But what was your impression of the uh, opening day today? Well, it's pretty exciting. It's my first time to see opening day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the legislature and just seeing um, a lot of groups bringing the culture in and demonstrating, you know, the poi pounding and, and uh, the lahala mm-hmm. mats and things like that. And then just hearing all the different speakers talking in support of Hawaii and support of our initiative. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, Did I technology know. come up as, uh, in, in any of those remarks? No, I didn't get to hear ah. many of the speakers, but it was mostly about the culture mm-hmm. and keeping the aina pure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, uh, you know, just to give uh, uh, some perspective, Robbie, I mean, last year when you came on board, I mean, you've been around for about a year, right? But but when you when you came on, I think the session was already... Underway, underway, right? Yeah. So you didn't get yeah. to take in that opening day, but uh, you were, like, I think on the first day having to try to figure out, like, 
who's who at the Capitol. Yeah, it was pretty exciting when I first came last year. Um, mm-hmm. Everything was already in session, so I was like, boom, giving testimony like almost immediately. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. And learning all the the legislators. So it was a, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those key legislators is Representative Angus McKelvey. And Angus, I understand no. you were running around there with a GoPro camera. Yes, captured. I was. Uh, GoPro actually a little, you know, always using technology, both, you know, trying to pursue it, uh, public policy, but to create better democracy. And I thought to myself, I heard about this from a colleague, a distant colleague from a house, state house and Vermont, I believe it was, and they put a GoPro on and they went ahead and as they did their things through committee hearings and meetings, they GoPro'd it and put it up on YouTube channel. And inter- I thought, what a great idea for my Maui constituents and the public at large to see firsthand mm-hmm. perspective of opening day. So we today was the launch and we went around the different offices and the hallways. We interviewed people on the fly. Yeah, you know, all I- different sectors. We were, it was one of the funniest one was we were actually interviewing Olelo, who was interviewing us. <laughs> but, you know, it's a great way for people to actually see firsthand, you know, the conversations that it is full of regular people. Mm-hmm. It's not these closed halls, especially for people from Maui and the neighbor islands where it really there's a disconnection because of the distance. Your and district and your district is like West West Maui. Yes. Right? Lahaina it's, it runs from, you know, Honokahau, if anybody who's listening knows the area, mm-hmm. uh, all the way down to one street in North Kihei. <laughs> wow. How that happened, I do not know. But yes, that's uh, so. But, you know, we have special challenges with the state government being in Honolulu. And this is a way to, you know, first and foremost for my constituents, but everybody in the public to get more involved, to see it firsthand. And, you know, hey, that might excite somebody to submit testimony and get involved in that in the end. is So, you know, when I stopped in your office, uh, I was thinking, wow, you know, your office, the door was closed and, you know, the, there was not like a lot of things happening in your office. And I said, mm-hmm. I said, where's uh, <laughs> Representative McKelvey? He says, oh, he's outside there with his GoPro on. And, and sure <laughs> enough, I walked out and there you were. Now, during the session, do you think uh, what kind of, uh, let's say, situations would you be perhaps strapping on that GoPro? I'm, I'm going to probably use it for committee hearings, not on my head. I was just thinking about <laughs> I mean, not the shoulder mount. I mean, I probably can do a shoulder mount out of it, but just a, definitely committee hearings where I'm chairing the hearing of the committee, mm-hmm, you know, spe- mm-hmm. especially, you know, that perspective. It would be interesting to see. It was fascinating watching the video, you know, today when we pulled it off of there. And then, you know, one of the things immediately was a long f- special floor session days, like crossover and first lateral. Those mm-hmm, are the ones mm-hmm. where all the major debate happens on all of the bills, you know, that are in the legislature to keep them alive or to, you know. And so that's where you really see the public debate. You know, one of my colleagues says steel upon steel and there's some really good Ooh. moments. And to be able to get that perspective from the camera and record it all and mm-hmm. put it up there so people can see you know, how, some of these great debates that happened in their House of Representatives and, you know. Yeah, well, you know, Bert and I, several years ago, we were experimenting with life casting, which was live broadcast from cameras mounted on us, our person, walking, <laughs> walking around. But our lives were definitely not as interesting as Angus TV would be. So. <laughs> well, yes, and exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I've talked to some people as we do meetings with key stakeholders on key bills. We'll strap on the GoPro, too, you know, like. You know, from not only just tech, but you know, broadband and other areas where you get to see the dialogue that happens, you know, at the Capitol. And again, that that hopefully motivates and makes people feel more connected to their government, which is just down the street from them, oddly enough, mm-hmm. in many yeah. cases. Mm-hmm. But you know, it can seem like a world away. So yeah. that's kind of the. 
Well, in our New Year's Eve show, we had uh, your counterpart on the, in the Senate, Senator Glenn Wakai, on, and he certainly did talk about some of the things that he anticipated as being a, mm-hmm. a, a tech policy issue to be on deck this year, this legislative session. So I wanted to kind of get into that now that we have you and uh, Robbie in. So one of the things that came up on that show that I was that I wanted to learn more about was this interest in revisiting uh, the R&D tax credit, you know, tax credits for research and development in firms in Hawaii. Um, Robbie, can you basically let us know where that is today and what it is that people are considering or thinking about changing in this legislative session? Well, I think um, Representative McKelvey could do a better job of yeah, explaining we, we, the bill. We have the, you know, we have the existing state R&D tax credit. We had a very you know, a very robust one back in the pre-221 days, 221 being the high-tech credit, you mm-hmm, know, to mm-hmm. be. And then what happened was, of course, is that that credit was sunsetted by the legislature during the recession. They brought it back, but they made some changes to it, which really limited the use of companies to be able to commercialize their research, which is the whole idea of trying to get your product to market and doing the business-related things that are needed is to move something from research and IP into the marketplace. So the one of these things was called incrementality, where the change was you couldn't claim all of the research you did from year to year, only the difference in spending or the additional spending. So and all of a sudden, you're not getting the full amount of this credit back that you would on the total spend that you would have. It was just on what additional spending you're doing. Well, a lot of companies were just coming out, you know, are, are trying to form capital. The recession made credit very limited still, you know, so it wasn't helping companies at all. So taking away that incrementality and allowing them to claim the credit sequentially for the entire amount will be able to give them more capital to be able to work and commercialize their products. So that's one place where by strengthening the credit, you know, and it's a responsible credit too, and that's the thing to keep in mind. It's not two two one. And I think it dovetails what the governor said, you know, and we expect him to say on his state of the state, which is, you know, these types of responsible credits, you know, that allow for commercialization and economic activity are things that we should be able to support. So the existing uh R and D tax credit, I guess as a from a numerical comparison, right, if you had Let's say you, were, you had an R&D spend of $100,000, and then the next year you had an R&D spend of $125,000. The twenty five k is the thing that you could be right now claim as existing. a tax. Yeah. But, but only 20, 20% of that, right? Yes, 20% so, of the twenty five. So see, right now under the current law, you're correct. It would only be the twenty five. But under returning it to the way it was before, taking that incrementality away would mm-hmm. be the one twenty five. One twenty five, yeah. right? And that makes it a lot, a lot, you know, more worthwhile, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, the other important thing about the R and D tax credit last year, we had ten companies um, submit for the tax credit, and out of their expenditures, they got about one point one million dollars back, or I think it's ten million dollars mm-hmm. back in return. But the interesting thing about these companies that are doing R&D, out of their 315 employees, 75% of them are doing actual R&D work. So they're the researchers doing the product development. And the interesting thing that I think is more important is that they're making $60,000 a year or more in salaries. And about 33% of those are making $100,000 a year or more. So that gives us a justification to invest in innovation because these are the high-wage jobs that we're seeking to bring to Hawaii. And so it's critical to keep, you know, our younger people here to have those innovation jobs. So, Robbie, uh, I I think it was last week sometime, there was a a technology briefing over at the uh, Capitol, and I think it sort of focused around the whole uh, tax credit. 
And uh, some of the companies that were, that were there all have sort of an investment in research and development in, within their companies. I mean, could you give us some of those examples? Yeah, so we had uh, ocean engineering that does like geothermal um, technology. We had Oceanet there with their robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a spin-out company, which I can't remember their name right oh, now. Oh, IBIS? Yeah, the, uh, IBIS. Yeah, yeah IBIS. IBIS. Yeah, so they are doing, you know, health monitoring systems. Very creative. We had Spectrum Photonics, and they're doing very high-level um, photonics technology for DOD. So mm-hmm. those are some of them. Live Action came, and I really like Live Action. It's a software company, but the the thing that really impressed me is it said it took them nine years to get to market, and they've got investment now, and they're mm-hmm. doing very well. But it really showed that it takes a long time to do R&D. It's not an overnight mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. We're talking to Robbie Milton, uh, Executive Director of the High Tech Development Corporation, and Representative Angus McKelvey, Chairperson for the House Committee on Consumer Protection and Commerce. And we're looking ahead to the new legislative session just kicked off today and what tech policies might be developed or addressed. If you've got an idea or a thought, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Angus, I think it was about a week ago, um, I caught uh, wind of uh, a story that Hawaii News Now did about about um, a bill that might focus on digital assets yes, and protecting the them. Bill. Yeah, that's right. So um, <laughs> can you share with our listeners what that was all about? Well, basically, as the new story surmised, it's a way to create, you know, to recognize property rights that occur with digital assets instead of them being subsumed by the company or entities which have them now. Uh, actually, it's funny because just today on opening day, there is a gentleman who's worked with the uniform, you know, the states on uniform laws, and they, they themselves have model legislation that they're going to recommend on digital assets this session. So it's funny, you know, there's a confidentiality drafting clause, so what happens is you don't know what other bills are being worked on. This is why you see so many bills every year that are identical to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so there will be two of them. But the point is to create, yes, exactly, you know, if you, when you put real money into virtual you know, things like Bitcoin, for instance, mm-hmm. or you have, you know, emails and photos that belong to you. And like any other property right, it should be yours to sh- give to your family, to your friends and others instead of it being a windfall for the company. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea behind the bill. And Delaware right now is the only state in the union that has such a recognized right on the books. But, you know, we feel that it is. You're spending your real money as a person to acquire these assets, just like you would anything else that you would then be able to pass on to successor heirs. So like if you're, uh, or in my case, I bought thousands of dollars in iTunes music and movies, but then when I pass on, Apple just basically says, oh, well, that account's closed. And exactly. And when you see this really now, and you know, some, you know, Tim Sakahar after the story, he kind of tongue-in-cheek about it, but it's just true. It's just, you know, the nature of the economy is people who buy virtual, a.k.a. gold or equipment through in-app purchases. You know, like all the PlayStation, Xbox titles, people spend real money, hundreds of dollars, to acquire these things, items, currency, whatever, and once they die, the next the company gets it back right away. And there was this case where the family, the son was an avid gamer, they wanted to bequeath them to his friends. Mm-hmm. And the company's like, nope, gone. Poof. So... You know, real money is being spent by people and being transmuted into this digital form. So just like anything else, it's a property, right? That's what the 
you know why we want to introduce the bill. So so you uh, it'll be coming out of the uh, your committee as yes, well as Consumer Protection Commerce Committee and Judiciary will be the two that would hear it. Oh okay okay yeah sure. sounds good and um, uh, Robbie I mean another another bill that is sort of. Uh, Kind of related to the R and D tax credit is the uh, SBIR, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what what is it that you're asking for with respect to SBIR funding. Yeah, so um, currently we have a program called Hawaii SBIR, which is a matching fund for any company that wins a Phase One SBIR program. SBIR and being Small, Small Business, Business Innovation Research. Research, yeah. And so what that is is there are 17 federal agencies that dole out billions of dollars a year on research, and it's actually a grant to companies. And less than 20% of companies that apply receive the grant. So those in Hawaii who do get the award, it's a really big deal. And our funding helps to support additional research for those companies. Well, unfortunately, our statute only allows us to go through phase one. So in the federal government, they have a phase two and a phase three, in a phase two, a company gets a million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, but it has restrictions. So it's not allowed to do a lot of the other things that we could use to support their research. So we'd like to expand our program so that we could provide matching funds to those in phase two and phase three. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, will that be, of course, asking the ledge to give some money toward this uh, you know, phase two and three funding? Yes, so we appropriate the money. Yes, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have to expand it because right now our funding is only five hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and that really isn't even sufficient for all of Phase Ones that we have. So we're not actually able to do the full fifty percent match mm-hmm. in our program now. So it would require an additional funding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Angus, another topic that's come up, and I think in recent shows uh, described as one of the key parts of fostering an innovation economy and even entrepreneurs as well as big businesses and R&D is broadband access and um, paying more for lower speeds than almost anybody else. Certainly there's a number of very clear reasons why that might be the case given our uh, geographic isolation, but uh, is that something that's on the agenda for 2015? Uh, Definitely, most definitely on a number of fronts. You know, uh, several things. One is to try to look at continue to expand our broadband outreach into rural areas to get coverage to rural areas. One of the ideas being floated is to look at innovative ways to create you know, better data and cell tower coverage in rural areas like the Big Island. One of the ideas explored this year is to be able to mount a cell phone transmitter on fishing buoys, existing fishing buoys and thereby create coverage by pointing it back to the coastal areas. Hmm. With, you don't have any NIMBY or issues that you would associate it on land and its existing device. And as a fisherman myself, I can tell you any additional buoys are usually welcome because they become fish aggregation devices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have a very low-cost way of implementing this kind of cellular infrastructure into these hard-to-reach areas. Others is to continue the fiber and, of course, you know, working to try to get a fiber landing, 10 gigabit for people. Kaka'aka was the idea originally, and hopefully that will be revisited this session to have, you know, a high-speed access right here for tech innovation. I, I thought that there, were, there was actually some money appropriated in the last legislative, le- legislative session. Poof. That 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 <laughs> identified that landing. Yes, and, and so you know, Angus is describing sort of this poofing um, yes, mechanism. The that poof mechanism of the restriction, the the cloud of restriction came down. You know, and uh, it basically, unfortunately, the you know they've identified the landing site areas for it, but the thing from the economic side was the ability the landing over here in Kaka'ako to have this ten gigabit uplink. But one of the other exciting things that's happening 
is also is partnering with NASA and the federal governments to have the first in the world laser communications backbone. And what this would do is, in essence, be laser-based broadband, laser-based fiber. Mm-hmm. It would be the same throughput as the cable that they're running right now from Malaysia over to Hawaii and then to the, to the United States, mainland. So you have a, this would be the first ever, and it would basically be relayed from California through a satellite down to Mauna Loa. And we're looking at partnering with them, not only in that first stage, which would be military and aerospace communications, but also on creating the link between the infrastructure and that so we could use it as a backbone for broadband. Now, I read an article about this, uh, you know, have NASA having selected Hawaii as being sort of this pilot for this yes. laser-based communications for broadband. But what is the legislative, um, I guess, part of it? What our, is it that ours is a, it's a matching fund program. And basically because other, you know, California, there are some other states that are obviously competing aggressively and places aggressively for this. But our area naturally is the best, but we're trying to basically do a match with NASA. That for every dollar the state of Hawaii puts in, they're willing to put in two dollars to mm-hmm, go ahead mm-hmm. and put this in, run the pilot, put in the dish, and if successful, the idea would be for us to make a further investment with them on connecting the fiber from there to the infrastructure. Mm. So then you would, in essence, you would have if that cable connection fiber was ever severed, you have another completely independent connection to the world. But you have another independent connection to the world to begin with. Mm-hmm. And right, right. an engineer from NASA told me when we were meeting about this, he says, this is, you know, he goes, I'm an engineer. I don't use big glowing words. This is historic for the state of Hawaii to have this implemented, this next generation of the internet in the state of Hawaii and nowhere else, just by the state partnering with the feds, you know. Oh, good, so good. So we'll, yeah, we'll definitely keep track of that. And, of course, we want to continue to talk more about broadband because it is a topic of near and dear to both of us. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Robbie Melton and Representative Angus McKelvey about the 2015 tech legislative session. What's ahead for plans for an HTDC building, for example? And, of course, there are many other proposals out there. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. The legislature is open, and of course, taxes are on the issue's agenda. Next on The Conversation, we'll talk about what's driving this year's tax bills as they take shape. Tom Yamachika, president of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, joins us, and you too. Tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. I'm Betty White, head of school at Sacred Hearts Academy. We have been an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio for several years. We always ask people where they hear about Sacred Hearts. A lot of our parents are riding long distances in cars. Our teachers are quite involved in some of the programming, and I personally find it very rewarding. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. 
Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Robbie Melton from the HTDC and Representative Angus McKelvey about tech policy in the 2015 legislative session. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking about broadband, and that's a topic of conversation that I think we're all quite interested in. And, of course, if you have a comment or question, you can give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And so, Robbie, uh, you know, there's uh, a couple of uh, ideas being kind of batted around. I mean, one was the fact that because uh, of the spend for ARRA funding, Gigabit was actually put into a lot of the uh, the university, the co- uh, community colleges, uh, and even the public libraries. And then the idea was, could we get Gigabit into the library and then actually kind of look at perhaps uh, uh, a co-working kind of arrangement and foster sort of this uh, class of uh, startups that are using Gigabit as a as a means of you know their sort of creativity. Yeah, there is a movement towards it. There's two things going on with the libraries. One is to do co-working space mm-hmm. because people can go in there and have good access to Wi-Fi. But there's also another thing they're looking at is doing makeries. And mm-hmm. because you have such a larger capacity of, of, of bandwidth there, that makeries could come in and do some prototyping and some more exciting innovation there besides just co-working space. Mm-hmm. And that's an idea that I've been excited about, of course, uh, using libraries as the gateways to knowledge. It's all kinds of knowledge, not just book knowledge, but how to create and build. Um, of course, there would be I would wonder, like, how loud is a laser engraver or a 3D printer? But that's something that uh, that we can work out. But 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 Internet access is certainly key. And, uh, uh, Angus, are we missing anything else in terms of ideas out there? Well, you know, that was a good one that was just brought up. And also we're, you know, one of the ideas that came out of this quasi-roundtable on the economy that's been done. And I've been lucky to work with my counterpart, who's representative of Derek Kawakami. He's actually the chair of the Economic Development and Tech uh, on the House side, and they've been doing a series of hearings. One came out with the visitor industry is trying to get high-speed universal Wi-Fi into the visitor areas, you know, starting with Waikiki and then all of the, the resort areas, because that's one of the things that clearly impedes us, especially with all the money we market Hawaii as a visitor destination, and it hurts our image is, hey, this isn't a place where you can do business. You know, the marketing has been you can come here and do business and enjoy, you know, the the, the great things about Hawaii, but, you know, you can see the situation, and I'm sure anybody listening who stayed down in Waikiki knows that. It's like a, it's a battle of the hot spots, and they drop in and out, and the coverage is terrible. And there's, you know, world-class travelers who are here. They, they're not going to hold serious meetings and groups and conventions that they don't have access to this kind of architecture. Well, you know, I guess I wouldn't even discount the recreational traveler. I think that yeah. if I was all over Instagram with my Hawaii vacation photos, I would be upset if my hotel Wi-Fi was oh, yeah. charging me 15 bucks a day or I have to go down to Starbucks to pick it up there. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then Netflix or anything else, you know. I mean, you're right. I mean, all of the things that people... And then you have an unhappy traveler who then tends to shorten their stay or not want to come back. That's right, the other right. whole... You're right, the whole other side of the coin there. But You know, I, I remember I was watching uh, President Obama when he did his talk uh, talk at uh, Cedar Falls, and he mentioned Instagram. So, you know, he's out there yeah. <laughs> Instagramming. Exactly. I mean, how do you expect to photobomb your friends if you don't have access <laughs> to Instagram? Well, because you, <laughs> you also have to have Wi-Fi at the airport for yes. free. Yes. Because now you're in the airport, and you've got hours before your next flight, mm-hmm. and you can't access Wi-Fi. 
Well, that's something we're definitely doing. As you can see, a lot of the con- existing contracts have finally lapped or run their course, and so the state is planning to try to move to doing the very same thing at the airports and all public facilities. I think that's what Senator Wakai, you know, from the Senate side, they're work- sharing and working on that vision is so far as trying to really maximize these RFB top investments that were done into the architecture for our public facilities and expand on them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. So, uh, Robbie, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit. I saw an article uh, in Pacific Business News about the entrepreneur sandbox and the fact that uh, Fisher, Hawaii, and Data House was ready to move in. I mean, what, what is the truth about this, uh, this story? Actually, we're so excited. So we, um, HTDC won an Economic Development Authority grant for $3 million to construct the entrepreneur sandbox in Kakaako. But the condition was we had to have a private partner, and Fisher Hawaii stepped up to the plate to do the financial match. So it's not just building a building, but providing funding for us to build our sandbox. And we see it as a community center for innovation. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to what was said in the article, is that it's going to be a place for the public can come, not just companies, but individuals. It'll be really exciting. Not only will there be co-working space, we'll have a digital media room so people can create YouTube videos, learn about how to develop games or animation. We're going to have a makery there. But we also plan to have restaurants, and we'll have a resource for education there, a training room. So, And then Data House came along mm-hmm. and said, hey, mm-hmm. we want to be a part of that too. And so they're building their, their facility alongside with our facility in Fishers. Well, one thing that has come up in conversations when we're talking about uh, – uh, government agencies or grants or nonprofits working in this way to create these uh, community meeting points, resources for people, uh, YouTube video uh, make uh, studios and makerspaces and libraries and such, is that there are also you know private companies trying to make a go of it doing those same things, uh, mm-hmm. a makerspace trying to make money, a, a, uh, a studio trying to rent space, a co-working space looking for members. Um, what, what's the view on maybe essentially competing with the private sector with some of these services? Well, that's exactly it, and that's where we, we, we tend to want to look to the, what they call public-private partnerships, where the government actually partners with these private entities to be able to do it together. Because you're right, you have replication, dilution of the marketplace, and opportunity, too. And at the same time, both sides can benefit by leveraging the resources of the other. Mm-hmm. Government can move faster because you have private sector involvement. The private sector gets the ability for more capital, and it's a stronger foundation to be able to carry it forward. You know, Investors on the private side know, okay, well, government's involved. It's not fly-by-night. There's going to be some business planning and you know some real mm-hmm. teeth behind it. So. Robbie? Yeah, so the public-private sector is really key for state agencies because we need to partner with the private sector to help spread um, our, our costs. But the other thing that's really important, it's not competition. So if you look at the places where there's innovation going on, it's just more. Mm-hmm. It's more of everything. So we have to have the private ones. We have to have the public sector ones. We need everything because that creates the energy for innovation, and that creates the new ideas and the new products and the new companies. So, yeah, there are private you know, co-working spaces, but we need it all. 
And that's going to create the buzz, and that's going to create the value for Hawaii. Now, uh, one of the other things that uh, we mentioned before the break was that, uh, as you recall, um, there was concerns about the HTDC and having space for it to operate at the Monroe Innovation Center, given its lease with the university, and then a proposal to find a new home or new building for the HTDC. Is that still an urgent pressing matter? Is that something for this year? Um. That's that's remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. So we are staying at the Manoa Innovation Center, and until that time that we can build our incubator center in Kaka'ako, then we're staying at the Manoa Innovation Center until that time happens. So, so we will, at some point in time, seek funding. We are actually having the master planning and design done for the space in Kaka'ako, but right now we are not seeking the funds for that until that master plan is designed. So, so Robbie, in, in this uh, 2015 legislative session, you're not making the ask for any appropriation for the not building? Not at this time for the CIP. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, you know, we uh, have a call. Uh, at one, at, uh, we want to welcome uh, Doug from Kalihi to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, my question was, uh, how is Hawaiian Electric going to uh, uh, support all this uh, new high-tech technology for the islands when they continually have rolling brownouts throughout the city, as well as, you know, being able to support all these new condos that are coming up in Kaka'ako. Is the legislature going to address the needs of this island uh, for technology? All right, Doug, okay, thank you. And uh, certainly energy availability, energy policy is in the wheelhouse of the legislature. Anything specific? Definitely. Uh, well, we're looking at, of course, LNG. Bringing in LNG is a low, much better low-cost fossil alternative. It's $16 landed cost as opposed to the $50 a barrel non-landed cost of oil that we pay right now. Continuing to pursue renewable generation and grid modernization, you know. Grid modernization is key, and that actually ties into the broadband. You know, this is the, the other side of broadband in the architecture, which is what the committee deals with, you know, is exactly having a smart grid, being able to see technology for load balancing and other things so that the brownouts, which were caused by, the, I believe, the Kaliloa generator that went offline, which has been repaired, to avoid situations like that. And, yeah, to create situations where more rooftop, you know, energy PV comes online, you don't have instability in the grid which has been one of the – why you have this back and forth between people who have been waiting for the queue and then this recent talk about abolishing the net metering program too. So mm-hmm. grid reliability is where technology meets energy, and that's something we're definitely focusing in on. But we're being very – I personally you know, want to make sure that we do our very due diligence on the next era HECO merger because that has a lot of implications that does affect broadband and tech. Yeah, that's. Th- I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that is going to be – a uh, pretty big uh, game changer and, and influence in our market, uh, given you know, given this company, uh, Nextera, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and reliable and expensive energy is you know, obviously, you know, it's one of the costs of doing business in Hawaii, creating being competitively, you know, economically competitive, mm-hmm. and so yes, and to me, LNG is a way for us to provide, you know, firm generation at a much lower cost. And there's other things, too, like, for instance, the seawater air conditioning project, other things that are going on in technology lower. And you know what? There's something energy efficiency, if I'm going to go ahead, and I will jump on this real quickly. To me, as a lawmaker, while we hope to talk about it this session, and we may, you know, the fact is that the state has to get serious about energy efficiency and using big data and other things to capture this leakage that exists that you only see an electrical bill, that you cannot 
put into your and there is enough revenue being lost by the state just in the cost of electrical efficiency, appliance degeneration, and other things to where I think we could get enough revenue to fund a lot of good programs like SBIR two and three at a much higher than five million. So that's something that we've got to continually push is efficiency. But within the state house, because we are the biggest consumers, obviously, of electricity, mm-hmm. you know, as an actor. Okay. Thanks, uh, Doug, for calling that in. You know, uh, one of the things that we want to maybe spend a little bit of time talking about is uh, um, previously, you know, it's speaking for the entrepreneurs and the startups, I mean, there was the Lava Fund and the High Growth Fund, and that really helped kind of kick off the accelerators that are currently in existence, Blue Startups being one of them. Um, when I when I spoke to... Uh, uh, Carl Fuchs uh, recently, he said that there there was really no um, effort on his part right now to ask for more for the accelerators. And Robbie, uh, maybe there's a you know um, a, a perspective that maybe they're successful, that maybe they're already in a sustainable mode. But wh- what do you think about uh, additional funding or maybe the lack thereof? Oh, I think that's probably a Carl question, but. Uh, uh in uh, my opinion, I think the accelerators are doing extremely well. Of course, funding is always an issue, and everybody can always use more funding. So it's not just you know a small pot of funding, but we need to expand different funding options. So that's why the SBR Phase 2, Phase 3 is so important. Mm-hmm. So some of these companies, once they get out of the accelerator, can go after you know SBIR funding, and then we can help support that and their efforts through the SBIR fund. Angus, any thoughts? No, she's absolutely correct, and that actually goes along with our philosophy in government right now. I mean, the general theme when the EGA administration gave us the their budget, the bare-bones budget, is we want to have, you know, you look at existing programs, things that we started and did, and how can we expand on them rather than creating new things mm-hmm. that you've got to go work through all of this evolution, you know. And I think SBIR is a perfect example of that. And actually, it mer- ties into... The tax credit as well, because companies getting that R&D tax credit can use that to successfully be able to win these phase two and three awards, mm-hmm. possibly. Mm-hmm. So, Are there any other uh, pillars in your uh, tech agenda for this year that we've failed to cover? No, we've been pretty thorough there. I mean, we've, <laughs> we've been permeating the broadband space. I think the main thing is, though, our committee looks at, you know, on a lot of levels, telecommunications, electricity, the architecture of an innovation economy, but DBED and the job that HTDC is doing others, that's the economic overlay. That's what creates the product of the architecture. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's more than just convenience in our lives and be able to share things with each other. It's a way to actually allow people to come back to Hawaii mm-hmm. and export mm-hmm. products from a resource store, you know, poor state around the world. You know, and that to me is what – and we're in the middle of an economic cycle right now. And we have a chance if we diversify now and make these investments – when we begin the downswing and go into the bottom of it, we'll have diversified our economy to the point where we can be more resilient than mm. we were the last. How much time. time do you think we have? I think five years. That's the that's sort of like the cycle that we need yeah, to- it's a ten year cycle and discussion and you know, just to put a prop out to you know the new director of DBED, Louis Salavera. We've had very spirited conversations about that. <laughs> so you know, but I tend to agree with him. You know, it's a ten year cycle and we're reaching the middle here, you know. So um, but, you know, again, that's like I said, that's the good discussion that happens right. often. Even oh, so we're tech. five years into a 10-year prosperity cycle? And- <laughs> <laughs> we're five years into a 10-year cycle. So, yeah, we're on the high end, but we're going to start to go to the bottom and start ending the bottom end of the curve again. So looking ahead, five years from now, oil goes back up again to $100 a barrel. 
things uh, cool, uh, uh, you know, they, you know, more restrictions on credit begin to, you know, become, you know what I'm saying? So you have a situation whereby by diversifying now, the revenue of the state isn't, you know, being jeopardized by having a monolithic economy. Well, we want to thank you both because, uh, you know, this has been a very interesting conversation. I think we will continue to have this conversation. And in check fact, in. Yeah. Probably tomorrow uh, at the HVCA uh, luncheon, <laughs> we'll probably continue this. Nice Robbie plug. Melton is the executive director of the High Technology Development Corporation, and Angus McKelvey chairs the Consumer Protection and Commerce Committee. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. That was great. Have a good week. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the Hawaii Underwater Research Laboratory, or HURL. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And please follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovit. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a... Here's a fellow and a very accomplished violinist, John Luke Ponty, and a song called Computer Incantations for World Peace. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.